This is episode 179 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Tomas Mann and the Magic Mountain. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. First, the good news. This podcast This week isn't about a book that borders on pedophilia. The bad news is that it might bore you to death. The book, that is, not the podcast. But let's see why it shouldn't bore you to death. The Magic Mountain was published in 1924, but it was begun in 1912 and was supposed to revisit some of the comic aspects of Death in Venice that we talked about in last week's Literary Sunday episode. In this case, how a real live boy gets caught up in the dance and seduction of death. But then Mann's wife got sick and got sent to a sanatorium in Davos, Switzerland. There are probably some jokes I could make here about the annual economic summit that's attended by the rich and famous uh, that's held in Davos every year, but I'll refrain for the moment. So his wife, this is Katya, who in last week's episode talked about Mon meeting the real live boy in Death in Venice. Anyway, so Mon went to visit her there and became acquainted with the place. And then World War I came. And there's nothing like a world war to make you rethink your current novel. And Mon began to think about Europe and culture and life themes like health and sexuality, there he goes again with sex, and mortality. So the book became huge and was eventually published in two volumes. Amazon clocks it in at 720 pages or 1.25 pounds. On top of that, it's open to interpretation. Wikipedia labels it as openly ambiguous. And part of the issue is Mann's use of irony in the text. And it makes me think of Mikhail Bulgakov's The Fatal Eggs, where he maybe used irony to protect himself from censorship. And I wonder if Mann was somewhat worried about getting in trouble with the authorities or with his friends for some of the ideas that he was espousing, which, as it will turn out when we get into his life, he had good reason to be worried about. Mann himself wasn't particularly helpful in clarifying the text after it was published, and he recommended that those who wish to understand it better should read it twice. He paused his novel during the war years and wrote a lot about the German cause, and he believed that Germans excelled at nature and culture, which he contrasted with civilization, which he thought of as French, God help us particularly Voltaire, although just to clarify, as I'm learning in my lit class, Voltaire wrote over 100 years earlier than that. 
But Mann thinks of civilization as the enlightenment and thought and reason, the geist. And it also appears there might have been some sibling rivalry in play as Mann's brother, Heinrich had written in support of Zola, the French novelist, calling him a civilized intellectual, and in particular criticizing people in Europe who were potentially supporting unjust rulers and warmongers. Anyway, so Mann then wrote his Reflections of an Unpolitical Man, which were published in 1918, mostly an attack on a civilizations literate whose apparently big crime was to side with life, reason, and progress, and against death and decay. More specifically to World War I, he supported the war, unlike his brother, and Mann defended German culture and argued that Germans were special and that nationalism and patriotism were appropriate for German society, even failing to condemn the massacres and attacks against Belgium and stated that Germans had to protect themselves from Western civilization. And he included himself in describing Germans as spiritual people instead of political people. So surprise, surprise, there are two characters in The Magic Mountain who appear to represent these two viewpoints, the civilized Italian Sedembrini versus the spiritual nihilist Nafta. And Mann wrote extensively to his friend Paul Amann during the development of the novel. And he wrote in 1915 at first that the novel had this humorous nihilistic bent and was inclined towards sympathy with death, a kind of celebration of the triumph of ecstatic disorder over a life devoted to order. But the war was building, and he uh, eventually wrote to Amon to say that he would have to write his unpolitical reflection separately to avoid overloading the novel. Hmm. But by the time the novel was published in 1924, Mann had actually reconciled with his brother, and his attitudes toward German culture and the war had changed. From the introduction, here's this quote, the book was now a large and complicated work of art, working as a mixture of Dante-esque allegory and modern European realism, of German mythic culture and intellectual debate, of Bildungsroman and farce. So it turns out when you're mixed up yourself, you tend to produce mixed up works. And I want to say here, you know, I'm not criticizing that. I think sometimes we stick to a particular viewpoint because we're embarrassed to change our minds. And another thing to think about is that Mann was born in 1875, and he became famous really young after the publication of his first book, Budensbrooks, which is a semi-autobiographical novel about the decline of a wealthy merchant family, which was, in fact, very similar to his own background. It was published when he was only 26 years old, and it brought him huge success, in part because he met Blanche Knopf. So, note to writers, it's really great if you can meet the wife of a major U.S. publisher in person when you're really young, so just arrange to make that happen, especially if you can get H.L. Mencken to introduce you. 
Though to be fair, Blanche was the co-founder of that firm and became a VP and then a president of the firm. She's also credited with designing that little dog or that wolfhound that's on the Knopf titles. She arranged for the translation of his books, although those translations by Helen Tracy Lowe Porter are now not the preferred translations. And she arranged for his books to be published in the U.S., and that book led to Thomas Mann winning the Nobel Prize. All that to say, Mann had to grow up through his books, and I really believe we shouldn't hold an evolution of his ideas against him, and maybe more of us should embrace uh, that, that freedom. So back to Magic Mountain, which pulls on mythology— uh, but also is a Bildungsroman in which a young man goes out into the world and discovers himself through his encounters. So here's a brief plot summary. A young man, Hans Kastorp, is the only child of a Hamburg merchant family. Sounds familiar. And he's about to take up a shipbuilding career, but he goes to visit his cousin in Davos who is sick. And then Kastorp himself gets sick and is diagnosed by the sanatorium's doctor as having some symptoms of tuberculosis. And quick aside about this, this actually happened to Mann when he visited his wife, uh, but his case was considered very mild. In fact, when he got back uh, to his home, it was thought to have been a misdiagnosis. But then at, upon his death, his postmortem did indicate, in fact, that perhaps he had had a touch of tuberculosis. So Castor uh, stays to get well, and he then meets a ton of characters, all representing various mythical, historical, or philosophical figures or viewpoints. And he ends up staying seven years and then leaves to volunteer for the army. And here's another not quite so quick aside about tuberculosis, since this is the Sunday episode about uh, pandemics and epidemics. Tuberculosis kills about 1.5 million people per year, which makes it the number one uh, cause of death from an infectious disease. And you get it when someone with TB coughs or sneezes or spits on you. It's active in India, China, Indonesia, the Philippines, and places in Africa. The BCG vaccine prevents TB in nearly 60% of cases and is the most widely used vaccine worldwide, with 90% of kids getting vaccinated. And it's given to about 100 million children per year. In Canada, U.S., and Western Europe, it's not used widely anymore unless people are at risk because apparently it makes people test positive for the disease. The vaccine was first used in 1921, so after the Magic Mountain and the Mons had had their run-in with TB in Switzerland. Now back to the Magic Mountain. I want to read to you from the introduction by A.S. Byatt, an English novelist and a Booker Prize winner for her novel Possession, which was made into a movie. She's also Margaret Drabble's sister, and she wrote this wonderful introduction to The Magic Mountain. She writes, 
The Magic Mountain, as well as being a German myth, is a parody of the building's Hohmann, in which a young man goes out into the world and discovers his nature through his encounters. The two talkative opponents are pedagogues, representing visions of human nature and the world, which were tested in Thomas Mann himself during the 1914 to 1918 war. Sedembrini is particularly attractive, and partly as Gastorp sees him, an organ grinder playing one tune, resolutely unaware of its limitations. NAFTA, Jew, Jesuit, connoisseur of the irrational, the anarchic, the nihilistic, is closer to Mann's own vision, which itself is closer to Nietzsche's strong pessimism than to the hopefulness of the age of reason. An enormous proportion of the novel consists of bravura descriptions of battling ideas, and it is fashionable now to dismiss Mann as a dry, even desiccated novelist of ideas, as though that description meant that he did not understand human feeling or passion or tragedy. It is possible to argue that novelists in general give disproportionately less space to intellectual passions than their power in society warrants. People do think and they do live and die for thoughts, as well as for jealousy or sex or erotic or parental love. As that wise critic Peter Stern remarked dryly, seeing that modern men are as often intellectuals as they are gamekeepers or bullfighters, Mann's preoccupation is, after all, hardly very esoteric. It is perhaps worth making the point that my own early readings of The Magic Mountain, impeded by scholarly earnestness, trying to get my bearings in an ocean of unfamiliar words, and baffled by an inadequate translation, quite failed to see how funny, as well as ironic and subtle, much of the argumentation and debate is. The nature of our relation to the comedy changes as Gastorp educates himself out of the extraordinary bourgeois, unreflecting innocence in which he begins. He begins to be amused, and we readers begin to share his amusement rather than laughing at him or observing him from outside his world. It's a great introduction, really great. The translation that seems to be preferred these days is the one by John E. Woods. And here are a few quotes to set the stage and which should make sense to us at this point, understanding what we do. It is love, not reason, that is stronger than death. Although it would be interesting to discuss this in the context of death in Venice, since in the end, he did die. Another one here, there are so many different kinds of stupidity and cleverness is one of the worst And having just finished Candide and having found myself this time around really kind of distinctly irritated by its smugness, this one feels directed at Voltaire, so I enjoyed that one. Another one here. I know I'm talking nonsense, but I'd rather go rambling on and partly expressing something I find difficult to express than to keep on transmitting faultless platitudes. Interesting idea. And another one here for you a bit longer. Isn't it grand, isn't it good, that language has only one word for everything we associate with love, from utter sanctity to the most fleshly lust? 
The result is perfect clarity and ambiguity, for love cannot be disembodied even in its most sanctified forms, nor is it without sanctity even at its most fleshly. Love is always simply itself, both as a subtle affirmation of life and as the highest passion. Love is our sympathy with organic life. And then another one here that, again, I'd argue with, but I rather like. Only love and not reason yields kind thoughts. Be curious to hear what you think about that. And then here's a a longer excerpt for you. How did young Hans Kastorp actually feel about all this? For instance, did the seven weeks he had demonstrably, indubitably spent with these people here feel like a mere seven days? Or did it seem to him just the opposite, that he had lived here now much, much longer than he really had? He asked himself those same questions, both privately of himself and formally of Joachim, but could not come to any decision. Probably both were true. Looking back, the time he had spent here that far seemed unnaturally brief and at the same time unnaturally long. It seemed everything to him, in fact, except how it really was, always presuming, of course, that time is part of nature and that it is therefore permissible to see it in conjunction with reality. A lot to unpack there. And now here's quite a long excerpt about how the passage of time gets away from the people in the sanatorium. It becomes its own world. In any case, October was close at hand, might arrive any day now. Hans Castorp had no trouble figuring out that much. And besides, he heard mention made of the fact in the conversations of his fellow patients. Do you realize that it's only five days till the first of the month, he heard Hermione Kleefeld say to two young men of her acquaintance, Rasmussen, the student and the thick-lipped lad whose name was Ganza. Dinner was just over, its odors still heavy in the air, and people were lingering among the tables, chatting and putting off their rest cure. The 1st of October, I noticed it on the calendar in the management office. This will be the second one I've spent at this cozy resort. Well, fine. Summer, or what there was of it, is over. We've been cheated out of it, just as we're cheated out of everything else in life. And she sighed with her half a lung, shaking her head and directing her doltish, sleepy eyes at the ceiling. Cheer up, Rasmussen, she said then, slapping her comrade on one drooping shoulder, and tell us some jokes. I know only a few, Rasmussen replied, his hands dangling chest high like fins, but I don't tell them very well. I'm always too tired. Not even a dog, Gonza said between his teeth, would want to go on living like this much longer, and they laughed and shrugged. Sedembrini had been standing close by, too, a toothpick between his lips, and as they were leaving, he said to Hans Kastorp, Don't believe them, my good engineer. Never believe them when they squawk, and there's not a one who doesn't, although they all feel very much at home here. Lead a free and easy life, and then demand you pity them. Think they have a right to bitterness, irony, cynicism. At this cozy resort— Well, isn't it cozy? I should certainly say it is, and in the most dubious sense of the word. Cheated, the little mink says. Cheated out of everything in life at this cozy resort. 
But send her back to the plains and her life down there would leave you in no doubt that her sole object was to get back here as soon as possible. Ah, yes, irony. Beware of the irony that flourishes here, my good engineer. Be aware of it in general as an intellectual stance. When it is not employed as an honest device of classical rhetoric, the purpose of which no healthy mind can doubt for a moment, it becomes a source of depravity, a barrier to civilization, a squalid flirtation with inertia, nihilism, and vice. And since the atmosphere in which we live provides very favorable conditions for this swamp plant to flourish, I may hope, or perhaps I must fear, that you do understand me. The Italian's remarks were truly the sort that if Hans Castorp had heard them down in the plains seven weeks before, would have been mere noise. But his stay up here had made his mind receptive for them, receptive in terms of intellectual understanding, though not necessarily in terms of sympathy, which perhaps is the most telling factor. For although in the depths of his soul he was glad that, despite everything that had happened, Sedembrini continued to speak with him as he did, continued to teach, to warn, to try to influence him, his own perceptive powers had advanced to the point where he would criticize the remarks and withhold his agreement, at least to some extent. How about that, he thought. He talks about irony in almost the same way he talks about music. The only thing missing is for him to call it politically suspect, the moment it stops being an honest and classical means of instruction. But if no healthy mind can for a moment doubt its purpose, what sort of irony is that, for heaven's sake, if I may ask, assuming I am to have a say in any of this? That would just be dry pedantry. Such is the ingratitude of immature youth. It accepts the gift of learning only to find fault with it. Nevertheless, he would have found it all too risky to put his insubordination into words. He limited himself to objecting to Herr Sedembrini's critique of Hermione Kleefeld, which seemed unjust to him, or which, for other reasons, he wanted to see as unjust. But the girl is ill, he said. She is truly, positively very ill and has every reason to be in despair. What do you want from her, really? Illness and despair, said Ambrini, said, are often only forms of depravity. And what about Leopardi, Hans Gastorp thought, who explicitly despaired of science and progress? Or what about our good schoolmaster himself? He's ill and keeps coming back up here. Carducci wouldn't have been all that happy with him either. But aloud, he said, Fine fellow you are. The young lady may breathe her last any day now, and you call her depraved. You'll have to explain that for me. If you had said that illness is sometimes a result of depravity, that would at least have been plausible, or... Very plausible, said Ambrini, broke in. My word! So you would have agreed had I left it at that? Or if you had said that illness sometimes is made to serve as a pretext for depravity, I would have accepted that too. Grazie tanto. But illness is a form of depravity, which means not that it arises from depravity, but is itself depravity? Now that's a paradox. Oh, I beg you, my good engineer, do not lay that at my door. I despise paradoxes. I loathe them. You may assume that everything I said about irony also applies to paradoxes and more besides. 
Paradox is the poison flower of quietism, the iridescent sheen of a putrefied mind, the greatest depravity of all. By the way, I also notice you are coming to the defense of illness yet again. No, what you say interests me. It reminds me of some of the things that Dr. Krokowski lectures about on Mondays. He too declares illness to be a secondary phenomenon. No pure idealist he. What do you have against him? Precisely that. Don't you approve of analysis? Not every day. It's very bad and very good by turns, my good engineer. How am I supposed to take that? Analysis is good as a tool of enlightenment and civilization, to the extent that it shakes stupid preconceptions, quashes natural biases, and undermines authority. Good, in other words, to the extent that it liberates, refines, and humanizes, it makes slaves ripe for freedom. It is bad, very bad, to the extent that it prevents action, damages life at its roots, and is incapable of shaping it. Analysis can be very unappetizing, as unappetizing as death, to which it may very well be linked, a relative of the grave and its foul anatomy. Well-roared lion, Hans Kastorp could not help thinking, as he usually did when Er Sedembrini uttered something pedagogic. So there's a bunch more that kind of goes on like this. But Sedembrini also insinuates something about Kastorp's interest in another guest, and that distresses Kastorp. I won't give too much away. Uh, but in this excerpt, we get to see here this classic scene of Kastorp out on his balcony looking at the view with the thermometer stuck in his mouth. And that's really the scene that I want you to always bring to mind when you think of the Magic Mountain. So here's this uh, classic scene. No doubt about it, he had meant something by that. Hans Kastorp entered his room in confusion. Did Sedembrini know what was going on with him? Presumably he had been spying on him for educational reasons, taking careful note of where his eyes were directed. Hans Kastorp was angry at the Italian, and at himself, too, because it was his own lack of self-control that had provoked the jibe. He gathered up some writing materials to take out with him for his rest cure, because there could be no more delays. A letter home, his third, would have to be written. And he went on being angry, muttering things about this windbag and quibbler who was sticking his nose into things that were none of his business but also who hummed little songs at girls in public. By now, he no longer felt like taking up the task of writing. This organ grinder and his insinuations had definitely spoiled the mood for it. But one way or the other, he had to have winter clothes, money, underwear, shoes, everything, in fact, that he would have brought with him had he known he would be here not for just three weeks at the height of summer, but but for a still undetermined period, which, no matter what, was sure to last into some of winter, indeed, given assumptions and circumstances up here, would very probably include the whole season. And that, or at least the possibility of it, would have to be shared with his family. It would require real work this time, making a clean breast of things and no longer pretending otherwise to himself or them. 
and it was in this spirit that he wrote, making use of a technique he had frequently seen Joachim employ, sitting in his lounge chair with his fountain pen in hand and a writing case against his raised knees. He wrote on sanatorium stationery, taken from an ample supply in his table drawer, to James Tinapol, the uncle to whom he felt closest of the three, and asked him to inform the consul. He spoke of an unforeseen vexation, of misgivings that had proven justified of the necessity on good medical advice of spending a part of the winter, and perhaps all of it, up here, since cases such as his were often more stubborn than those that began more spectacularly, and since the important thing, really, was to intervene decisively and so arrest his case's progress for good and all. Seen from this angle, he suggested it was a stroke of fortune, a happy turn of fate, that he had chanced to come up here and had occasion to be examined, because otherwise he would probably have remained unaware of his condition much longer and perhaps have learned of it in a much more distressing fashion. As for the estimated time of his cure, one should not be surprised if he might have to make a winter of it and would be able to return to the plains hardly any earlier than Joachim. Notions of time here were different from those applicable to trips to the shore or stays at a spa. The month was, so to speak, the shortest unit of time, and a single month played no role at all. It was cool. He was wearing his overcoat, had wrapped himself in a blanket, and his hands turned red as he wrote. At times he would look up from his paper, covered with reasonable and convincing phrases, and gaze out into the familiar landscape, which he hardly noticed anymore, the long valley, its exit blocked today by pale, glassy peaks, the bright pattern of settlement along its floor, glistening now and then in the sun, and the slopes, covered partly by rugged forests, partly by meadows, from which the sound of cowbells drifted. Writing came more easily as he went along, and he no longer understood how he could possibly have been afraid of this letter. As he wrote, he came to see that nothing could be more plausible than his explanations, and that, of course, his family at home would be in perfect agreement with them. A young man of his social class and circumstances should take care of himself when that proved advisable. He made use of facilities set aside expressly for him and people like him. That was only proper. Had he returned home, they would have sent him right back up here upon hearing his report. He now asked them to send the things he needed, and in conclusion, he asked that necessary funds be sent regularly— 800 marks a month would take care of everything. He signed it. That was done. This third letter home was comprehensive. It did the job, not in terms of conceptions of time valid down below, but in terms of those prevailing up here. It established Hans Kastorp's freedom. This was the word he used, not explicitly, not by forming the syllables in his mind, but as something he felt in its most comprehensive sense, in the sense in which he had learned to understand it during his stay here. Though that was a sense that had little to do with the meaning Sedembrini attached to the word. And as he heaved a sigh, his chest quivered as the wave of terror and excitement that he knew quite well by now swept over him. 
Blood had rushed to his head as he wrote. His cheeks burned. He picked up mercury from the nightstand and took his temperature as if he could not let this opportunity pass. Mercury climbed to 100 degrees. You see, Hans Kastorp thought, and he added a postscript. This letter has been quite an effort. My temperature stands at 100 degrees. I see that for the time being, I shall have to keep very quiet. You will have to excuse me if I don't write more often. And then just to round things out, here's an example of the thinking of NAFTA. Remember, he's the nihilistic spiritualist. Also remember that the Titanic sank in 1912, and Castorp was a shipbuilding engineer, so it was an important event for him. NAFTA loathed the bourgeois state and its love of security. He found occasion to express this loathing one autumn afternoon when, as they were walking along the main street, it suddenly began to rain, and as if on command, there was an umbrella over every head. That was a symbol of cowardice and vulgar effeminacy, the end product of civilization. An incident like the sinking of the Titanic was atavistic, true, but its effect was most refreshing. It was the handwriting on the wall. Afterward, of course, came the hue and cry for more security and shipping. How pitiful, but such weak-willed humanitarianism squared very nicely with the wolfish cruelty and villainy of slaughter on the economic battlefield known as the bourgeois state. War, war. He was all for it. The universal lust for war seemed quite honorable in comparison. All right, let's dig in here to the stuff we've kind of been playing around the edges of, and that is Nazis. So it's worth noting that Mann's wife Katya was Jewish, although she later joined the Lutheran Church. So in 1912, they moved to Davos, to the sanatorium. And then Mann spent the war years writing about Germany and having children, of which he and Katya had six by the early 90s, Mann was traveling and heard that it would be unsafe for him to return to Germany. So he and Katya and most of the children emigrated to Switzerland. And after Germany occupied Czechoslovakia in 1938, he emigrated to the U.S. and began to teach at Princeton. And in 1942, they moved to L.A. In 1944, he became a U.S. citizen. And remember Blanche Knopf? She returned to the U.S. in 1936 after one of her trips to Europe and said all the good writers had been driven out of Germany. And she's quoted as saying, There's not a German writer left in Germany who is worth thinking about. The gifted writers and enterprising publishers who had any independence have all left Germany. Only Nazi writers and publishers remain. They write and publish to please the Nazi government. When World War II broke out in 1939, Mann began to record eight-minute-long anti-Nazi speeches, which were flown to London and then broadcast by the BBC to the German people on long-wave radio. He condemned Hitler as being out of touch with German culture. He was a publicly active opponent of Nazism and eventually talked about collective German guilt on a BBC broadcast in 1945. This is what he had to say. Those whose world became gray a long time ago when they realized what mountains of hate towered over Germany, 
Those who a long time ago imagined during sleepless nights how terrible would be the revenge on Germany for the inhuman deeds of the Nazis cannot help but view with wretchedness all that is being done to Germans by the Russians, Poles, or Czechs as nothing other than a mechanical and inevitable reaction to the crimes that the people have committed as a nation in which, unfortunately, individual justice or the guilt or innocence of the individual can play no part. Yikes. Then, just when you think his views are becoming more mainstream, he got hauled up in front of the House on American Activities Committee for being an apologist for Stalin and a suspected communist. He had written quite favorably about communism, although he described himself as a non-communist rather than an anti-communist, which reminds me of the anti-racism fervor taking place around us today. For an allegedly apolitical guy, he sure got in a lot of trouble for his political views. He defended himself saying, As an American citizen of German birth, I finally testify that I am painfully familiar with certain political trends, spiritual intolerance, political inquisitions, and declining legal security, and all this in the name of an alleged state of emergency. That is how it started in Germany. He joined the protests against the jailing of the Hollywood Ten, but said that he found that the media was closed to him. He was forced to quit his position at the Library of Congress, and in 1952, he went back to Switzerland. He never again lived in Germany or the United States. He passed away in 1955. In conclusion, I want to spare some kind thoughts for Thomas Mann, uh, who had the misfortune of being born a German during a time when it was difficult to be a German. And as we talked uh, last week, his sexuality also gave him fits, and he had a head full of ideas which were often at odds with contemporary thinking. Nevertheless, I admire his honesty in his writing and his courage in addressing really tough topics and his attempts to explore complicated thoughts, even if sometimes it seems to a modern reader to be rather laborious. We probably have such brave thinkers and writers today, although none come immediately to mind. Perhaps some of you follow in that tradition, and so I would say thanks and good for you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. 
And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.